This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Today, we'll be debating what 21st century skills students are being taught and whether they're being properly assessed and recognised. Now, many people acknowledge that equipping students with effective tools and strategies to help them think critically and reason logically is essential preparation to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Students need these skills to enable them to compete with their contemporaries located all over the world to secure places in higher education and employment. Concepts of 21st century skills vary widely, as I think everybody here will know, but most include critical thinking, problem-solving, creativity, communication, collaboration, information literacy, and life skills. Moreover, self-directed study skills, intellectual curiosity, and independent research skills are also valued highly in employment and higher education courses around the world. And of course, a key skill uh, of interest to uh, Cambridge Assessment, but one we're not discussing today, but of interest to our Asia-Pacific colleagues, who I hope will be watching online, uh, is English language acquisition. But luckily, we're not dealing with that today. So the three main areas we think are worth exploring, they are in no particular order. What's the impact of 21st century skills in international contexts? What's being done in the classroom today? And what are the needs of industry and higher education, and are they really being met? Now, interestingly enough, the curriculum... Curriculum 2015 model, currently used in Singapore, is structured around the promotion of 21st century skills and competences. It's illustrated by this diagram, uh, usually referred to as the Swiss roll, uh, and almost all aspects of the curriculum are justified and defined by reference to this diagram, which is familiar to practically every teacher in Singapore. So, in short, and within three hours... We want to explore how we can ensure how and which skills can be incorporated into curricula and be properly assessed. So, moving on, a few ground rules. There aren't many. Firstly, this is a debate, not a question and answer session. If you want to pick up on a point made by somebody else in the audience, feel free to do so. If you want to make a statement rather than a question, do so. All that I ask is you do it through the chair, me, and you make your points as concisely as this complex issue allows. I will cut people off if I think they've made their point already. Secondly, you'll note we're filming this discussion and broadcasting it on the web live for the benefit of that much wider audience that can't make it here today. Please ignore the cameras, but please make sure, if you're asked to speak, you wait for a microphone to arrive and give us your name and the name of your institution. Thirdly, I'd like you to encourage you to submit questions and comments using the question sheet that can be found in your delegate packs. Please pass your question sheet to James, who is stationed near the back, um, and outside the door to the auditorium as you make your way back here after the short coffee break. And of course, those of you joining us from home can submit questions and comments at any time using the online system. Should just remind the audience that actually the online audience is probably anywhere between five and ten times larger than the hundred people we have in the audience. Now you'll find in your packs a copy of the latest issue of Research Matters, and inside that is an article by Dr. Urenka Suto, Principal Research Officer at Cambridge Assessment, entitled 21st Century Skills Ancient, Ubiquitous, Enigmatic, which gives you an idea of how complex this is going to be. Um, those of you watching at home will find a PDF on the web page in front of you. So we're going to start the event today by hearing from Irenka, who will give us an overview of her paper, which explores how the development of skills in young people can best be supported, drawing on recent examples from the UK and internationally. Irenka, if you'd like to come up to the... Uh, you will also need the button. Irenka studied at the University of Cambridge, uh, obtaining a BA in Natural Sciences and a PhD in Psychology. She stayed on to conduct postdoctoral research in financial decision-making and the assessment of mental capacity among people with intellectual disabilities. In 2004, she joined the Research Division at Cambridge Assessment, where she's the Principal Research Officer. 
Much of her work has focused on the many human judgments and decisions entailed in educational assessment as made by students, teachers and examiners. She's currently leading a programme of research into curriculum and qualifications reform, so well qualified to speak on the value of international comparisons in assessing 21st century skills. Good morning, my name is Irenka, as, as Bennett said, I'm, I'm very glad to have this opportunity to introduce the topic of, of 21st century skills this morning. I got interested in this issue myself a couple of years back when my director, Tim Oates, asked me to, to look into it and to, to find out what was meant by the term. It was felt that um, the term's bandied around quite a lot in the media and elsewhere, but um, we, we within Cambridge Assessment could benefit from a clearer understanding, some clarification as to, to what's meant by the term and also how these skills are developed in, in our young people today. So I, I did a bit of an investigation in this area, and um, I found that the broad argument for 21st century skills is that, well, well life in a global economy such as um, today's is, is highly international, very multicultural, and also very interconnected. And this is um, in a large part due to, to seismic advances in IT, ICT, and into access to it. And this has enabled um, the economies of developed countries, such as the UK's, to, to shift from a, a basis of material goods and services to a basis of information and knowledge. And that means that today the understanding and skills needed are, are, dif are different to those upon which 20th and 19th century education systems have traditionally focused. So, so whereas in the past um, possession of detailed facts and figures was a, a passport to a good professional job or to a, a place at a good university, now the emphasis has shifted and it's more about using the information that we can all access pretty readily online and, and elsewhere. So this was the, the broad argument I found in the, in the literature. When it came to, to looking at what 21st century skills are, well, as, as Bennett said, there's, there's no single widely accepted um, definition and that the literature... Well, it contains hundreds of different skill sets that we hear all the time. I've just put a few on this example here. Um, life skills, non-cognitive skills, applied skills, interpersonal skills, workforce skills. There are lots of different definitions and, con and conceptions produced by researchers and big organisations around the world. However, having said that, I found that ATC21S, that's Assessment and Teaching of 21st Century Skills, which is a big international collaboration between um, governments, um, industry and universities, which I think we'll hear about more later today. They've produced what is probably the, the biggest literature review um, on this area in the last few years. And they've come up with, with four main categories of 21st century skills. <coughs> ways of thinking, ways of working, tools for working and living in the world. So th these are the four main categories. And they found that there are 10, 10 21st century skills that essentially um, encompass and encapsulate all other 21st century skills and um, include all other approaches um, to developing them. So within ways of thinking, we have creativity and innovation, critical thinking, problem solving and decision making and learning to learn and metacognition. We also have ways of working, communication and collaboration. The tools for working are information literacy, so being able to mine information and make best use of it and not be um, consumed by too much detail and ICT literacy, of course. And then for living in the world, we have citizenship skills, both, both local and global, life and career skills, and then personal and social responsibility as well. So this was the, the most comprehensive um, set of um, definition for the set of skills that I could find. <coughs> there are, however, many other important and interesting perspectives. Talking to Cambridge University admissions tutors, for example, people frequently refer to mental fluency, so fluency of mathematical thought, scientific thought, fluency of historical thought, as well as articulacy, which is arguably an aspect of communication in which some people worry about is becoming a, a preserve of the middle classes in the UK. And then high motivation and an interesting complexity and difficulty, which arguably leads to and feeds into creativity, is also important. Multilingualism isn't explicitly mentioned in the, in the ATC21S definition, and it has some different meanings to different people. In some parts of the world, employers regard essentially um, multilingualism as boiling down to speaking English um, in addition to a native um, language. <coughs> so the, the main um, language for, for business communications in many places is English, and in order to read technical and specialist documents which haven't been translated into every language, English is essential. 
There are others, however, who, who feel that multilingualism is actually about speaking another language in addition to your own native language, and that this process of la learning any other language enhances your understanding and appreciation of your own native language and helps with your um, metacognitive skills and your appreciation of, of language and of learning <coughs> other things as well. There are also links between 21st century skills and emotional intelligence. There's a, a massive body of literature on what emotional intelligence is and whether that exists, and many of the skills are, are overlapping, um, interpersonal, intrapersonal skills and so on. And um, emotional intelligence is, is often conceived of and conceptualised as a, an aspect of personality, so very malleable, and developing right up into, the, into a person's um, 20s and beyond. There are also subject-specific uses of 21st century skills as a term, so 21st century literacy, um, science and maths and, and so on. And often the emphasis here is on, on 21st century curriculums that are fit or modern or fit, fit for purpose in the 21st century. So the, the implication is really that, that subjects must evolve to meet new needs. So what was fine in the 20th century is no longer suitable. And there may be pedagogical leaps or, or quite considerable changes in the subject content that's, that's covered in a particular curriculum or syllabus. But I think this is less of a focus of today's debate, the subject-specific uses. There are multiple approaches to developing 21st century skills, and I'm just going to whiz through six of them today. The first approach, which I, I think is quite a, an important one, is, is actually to continue with long-standing um, teaching methods. It can be argued that actually 21st century skills are really, really nothing new, and that the focus on them today, at events like this and in the media, is actually um, due to deficits in aspects of the um, current educational system, um, and that they're, they're really nothing new. And if you, if you look back to Socrates 2,400 years ago, he refers to creative and critical and analytic thinking in one way or another. And it's, these skills are valued by John Dewey in the, 21st, in the 20th century, for example. And <coughs> maths, science, vocational courses, so that, such as electricians' courses as well, can be reconceptualized in terms of the problem solving and critical um, thinking skills that they engender and entail. In this diagram here, I've, I've taken Bloom's, um, Bloom et al.'s renowned taxonomy of, um, of cognitive um, educational objectives, the cognitive domain, um, which was developed in 1956. This is Anderson and Craftwell's reworking of it, but, but the, the, the skills of, are, are essentially the same, analyse, evaluate and create and so on. And I've attempted to place the ATC21S 21st century skills within the taxonomy, and I found that it was, it was reasonably easy enough to, to do that through at least seven of the skills. Um, so I've positioned them where I, where I could there, generally as higher order thinking skills. Outside Bloom's cognitive domain, I've got communication, collaboration, and ICT literacy. Now, whilst this, this last skill, ICT literacy, is unlikely to have existed widely in, in 1956, I'd say that communication and collaboration were certainly around, but they were just um, conceptualised as as integral parts, as necessary components <coughs> of, other, of other skills and of other approaches to education, and that we could communicate and collaborate in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and something, but we didn't express or articulate it in this way. A second contrasting approach is to develop curricula explicitly covering um, 21st century skills. So um, critical thinking, for example, is, is now a subject in its own right. You can take an A-level in critical thinking. Similarly, thinking skills and global perspectives courses, such as those offered by the Cambridge Pre-U, are, are widely available. And then there's been debate uh, a lot recently, actually, over the, the positioning of ICT in the curriculum. Should we teach it as a discrete subject? Um, and, th and this is using ICT rather than computing. Should it be a, a tool for learning? So should we use word processing in schools to, to rewrite essays? Or should we stimulate um, scientific um, simulations, um, do, do that kind of thing to test hypotheses in science? Or should it provide the whole learning environment? Should we use online materials and resources? And should, should we have a, an on-screen or computer-based tutor and assessor in the education that we do? A third approach is to, op um, to adopt a skill-centred pedagogy um, to teaching 21st century skills. And a really good example of this is RSA's Opening Minds Framework, which, which operates in a, at least 200 skill, um, schools in, in this country. The, the um, pedagogical framework is based around five key competencies, citizenship, managing information, managing situations, learning to learn, and relating to people. And the idea is that um, 
that teachers can devise their own um, lesson plans and they can teach whatever subject content they like, but they teach it through these competencies. So the competencies become the, the learning objectives in any particular lesson. Some of these lessons are, are three hours um, long and this, this scheme has had some, some remarkable achievements. A fourth approach is to nurture 21st century skills through extra or co-curricular activities. I've just put up a few classic examples here. Few people would argue with the, the broad benefits of, of this kind of activity. However, there are concerns over inequality and inequity with, with some of our less advantaged and um, underprivileged children in this country um, struggling to get the opportunities of, of some of their peers to, to engage in these kind of activities. There are also concerns about girls um, being less involved in sport or, or students with lower abilities, the, the, the children who are less good at sport, making it into school um, teams and so on and having as much opportunity in that respect. And the fifth approach, which is perhaps more popular in other countries in Europe, is to develop 21st century skills through the workplace. This is uh, um, a quote from two well-known researchers. Workplace apprenticeship is a fundamental principle of vocational training in Germany and is thought to contribute to the most favourable conditions for developing skills. And, this, and, and the authors go on to talk about skills such as problem-solving, communicating difficulties, collaboration. So some of the 21st century skills I was mentioning um, earlier. Of course, um, this kind of approach involves considerable moral and economic commitment from employers, but it's, um, it's an important one to consider as well. And then the sixth approach I'd like to mention is, is cultivating 21st century skills through independent research projects. This is an idea that's reason, really taken off in the UK and, and internationally as well in, in, in recent years, and I've put up a few examples here. So there's the British um, Science Association's Crest Awards, for example, they're for secondary school um, children um, wanting to do projects in the STEM subjects, science and maths and engineering. On a local level, Farnborough, um, um, college, the Sixth Form College in Farnborough um, has a scheme whereby its sixth formers can produce their own um, research reports. Um, the three big examples all offer project qualifications, particularly the extended project qualification for 16 to 18-year-olds. Um, IB have their extended essay for diploma students, and Cambridge Preu has its independent research reports for, for diploma students and GPR students. So um, that's my, my final approach. I'm sure you can think of many other ones, but I'd like to, to end there and hand back over to, to Bennett. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Irenka. Um, well, I think that lays a very solid, solid uh, plinth to the, to the start of the um, seminar today. Um, so we are immensely lucky. We now to discuss the value of international comparisons in assessing 21st century skills, and we're immensely lucky that Andreas, Andreas Schleiser, Special Advisor on Education Policy from the OECD, uh, is with us on a live video link from Paris, which means he should be coming up any minute now. And there he is. Good morning, Andreas, and thank you very much for joining us. Um, so Good morning. The, how we're going to run this is that each one of our uh, speakers will give us about five minutes on... Uh, uh, five to ten minutes on uh, uh, their view of 21st century skills, and then we'll have enough time for a little bit of a discussion at the end, but I see all of this feeding in to the final discussion at the end of the, end of the morning. So I don't think Andreas needs m a massive amount of introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, as we all know, he's Special Advisor on Education Policy to the OECD's Secretary General. Uh, he ha provides strategic oversight on its work on the development and utilisation of skills and their social and economic outcomes. This, of course, includes PISA, but also the Survey of Adult Skills, PIAAC, the Teaching and Learning International Survey, TALIS, uh, and the development and analysis of benchmarks on the performance of education systems, the INES. Um, now, before joining the OECD, he was Director for an Analysis at the International Association for Educational Achievement, studied physics in Germany, has a degree in maths and stats from Australia, has numerous honours and awards, um, including the Theodore Heuss Prize, awarded for exemplary democratic engagement, and he holds an honorary professorship at the University of Heidelberg. So, uh, a good start. Andreas, what would you like good to Good morning, say? I hope you can hear me well. Uh, can, uh, can people hear at the back? Lovely. Yes, we can all hear you. 
Thank you. I thought this was a great introduction already on the sort of supply side, the kind of frameworks that are being used for 21st century skills. So I wanted to just reflect on this a bit from the demand side. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that you can observe today when you look not just on the skills that people have, but how they actually use them is this is this mix, is this level of skill match. You know, you turn on the television these days, so you look at Egypt, and you can see 1.5 million highly educated graduates on the street, unemployed, and at the very same time, you can see that there were 600,000 vacancies that employers couldn't fill because they say they couldn't find the people with the skills they need. And that's a phenomenon that we actually see much sort of uh, the same in, in many of the uh, OECD countries too. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about new subject area, but also in the ways in which we look at them. And the question, of course, arises if these 21st century skills are very hard to define in a national context, how can we add value to them in an international one, in an international context? But I do think there are several angles to this. I mean, first of all, once again, if we look across the industrialized world, how the demand for skills has been changing. We can observe really amazing changes. On the one hand, uh, we've seen a decline in whatever, routine manual, non-routine manual skills. That's because those jobs got automated, digitized, outsourced. I think that's very well sort of understood. But actually, you can see that the steepest decline in the demand for skills is no longer in the field of manual skills, but actually in what we call routine cognitive skills. Now, the kind of things that are easy to teach, the kind of things that are easy to test are increasingly amenable to computers. They can be digitized, can be automated, uh, and so on. And that's something that we can actually see when we look in our OECD assessment of adult skills, for example, uh, how people use their skills. We can see those things. We can see an increase in the demand for non-routine analytical skills. This is basically about your capacity not to reproduce what you learn, but to extrapolate from what you to apply, to transfer your knowledge to novel situations. Um, I guess that's what the previous speaker uh, identified as ways of thinking. So we can actually measure that there are really quite substantial shifts in the way in which people use their skills today. We can see an increase in what we call non-routine interactive skills, the capacity of people to compete, collaborate, connect, basically uh, all these kind of social skills that um, <clears throat> you talked about. Now, again, you know, what, where can international assessments add value to this kind of discussion? It's obvious it's hard to do in a national context. How, how can you do it in an international one? I just wanted to pick up the three points here. One of this is, you know, the low stakes that international assessments have in a national framework. You know, nobody's going to lose a degree. Nobody's going to sort of see some individual consequences out of them. Actually, a very important advantage in the sense that international assessments can sort of dare to venture into territory that is often very, very hard to do in a national context. You, in, a, in a national context, it's very, very difficult to assess anything that isn't directly part of the instructional system because essentially you would be unfair to people. When you construct an international assessment, you actually only have two choices. You can either focus on the lowest common denominator of national curricula. You look at what everybody is teaching, and that ends up with a very stale kind of limited scope for your assessment, or you venture beyond that, and then you basically are bound to assess things that are not being part of national curricula, whatever, it's at least a subset of countries. And, and that's sort of where international assessments, sort of that's the bind in which they are, but it's also the opportunity they have really sort of to do things, to try things that are not necessarily part of the national instructional systems. The second part I want to mention is, is that we often forget that there is very significant variability in which, in the sense in which countries define curricular subject areas. Don't need to talk about sort of things like um, new, new subject area problem solving or great creativity and so on, but if you just think about how mathematics is defined in different countries, how mathematics curricula are framed in different countries, how mathematics assessments are framed in different countries. And international assessments can actually re reveal important variability that you couldn't observe in a national context. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, you look at a country like uh, Kazakhstan or the Russian Federation. And they've been tested with TIMS, which is sort of one international assessment, and they come out right on top. You know, Russia and Kazakhstan really are top-performing systems or high-performing systems on TIMS. You give those students the PISA test, another international exam, and uh, both of those countries rank at the very bottom. If Russia had ranked 23 and Kazakhstan a lot lower than that. So, and it's both about mathematics, it's both about people around the age of 13, 14, 15, sort of. But then you look at more closely and you can actually see, you can drill down, you know, what makes those kinds of differences. And you suddenly see that the kind of tasks that Tim's emphasizes those countries also do quite well on PISA. Now, that's basically the reproduction of subject matter content. Actually, students in Kazakhstan and Russia actually do really well on that. But um, that's only part of the story in PISA. The, the larger part of the story actually is about this kind of 21st century thinking about mathematics. You know, you don't only have to sort of remember something. You have to, first of all, figure out what's the mathematical problem that you're confronted with. Now, you have to translate the real-world problem into a mathematical problem. Nobody's going to tell you this is about geometry or algebra. You have to find out what mathematical tools are that you need to actually use. You have to apply those tools. You have to translate the results of your work back into the real world. So it's actually requiring you not only to remember specific mathematical procedures, which is sort of the dominant part in the, in the content-based assessment, but it requires you to do other things. And actually, international assessments allow us to expose those differences. I, I therefore think they are a very, very important tool to sort of see to what extent 21st century skills have been embedded in different kind of uh, instructional systems and with what success. So I think international assessments really can help us to sort of unpick that. Um, the last point I want to make, and that's probably the least convincing one, but um, international assessments, of course, are one way for countries to pool resources in important development work. And again, I can tell you an example from, from, from PISA. Uh, we have that ambition. We know that interpersonal skills are growing in their relevance. They are usually out of the scope of national assessments because they're very, very hard to assess. I think the ATC21S project that was mentioned before had some efforts, but it's very, very difficult to do. What we could do in a project like PISA is actually put together a sort of almost six-year research and development program actually to develop the kind of assessments. There isn't the kind of pressure that you would have national framework. There isn't the kind of limitation to curricular domains, but there's actually sort of a lot of resources bringing together the best minds for many countries to actually make those things happen. So I think those are three arguments where I actually see great merits in international assessments to move this 21st century agenda forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so, next is Paul Andrews. Um, qualify, if, if Paul could move to the lectern while I'm talking, it'll speed things along. Um, he taught maths in three comprehensive schools in Telford, England, before becoming a teacher educator at Manchester Metropolitan University in 1990. He joined the uh, Faculty of Education at the University of Cambridge in 1999, before becoming Professor of Maths Education at the University of Stockholm in 2013. His primary research interest, typically drawing on video recordings of maths lessons, lies in understanding how different European cultures construct their respective intended, implemented, and attained curricula. And such work, of course, cannot be meaningfully undertaken independently of the influence of these large-scale tests like TIMS and PISA. So actually, a rather handy addition to Andres. Thank you, Bennett. Um, good morning. I feel something of a fraud. I know nothing about assessment. So I suspect my role here this morning is to provide some sort of voice of caution. Whatever research I've done over the last 15, 20 years, the one conclusion I have come to is that what you assess becomes what is taught. I want to start talking about Finland. And in, and in talking about Finland, I suspect I'm going to contradict some of the things that uh, 
Andreas has just described. Pisa has, sorry, Pisa has created out of Finland a phenomenon. When you look at the results of Finnish students on all cycles so far of PISA, all four of them, across the three assessed domains, we see one of the world's most successful uh, educational systems. Those are the rankings achieved by Finnish students on PISA at age 15 on those, performance, on those various assessment domains. This has led to a global interest in what is going on in Finland, to the extent that more than 15,000 German speakers alone have flocked to find out what the Finns are doing. Ofsted has also been. I hopefully, if I have time, will return to Ofsted. So we have this phenomenon. The world thinks that something is going on in Finland that is worth investigating, that is worth reporting. Well, how do the Finns explain their success? Well, most of the factors that they describe when analysed against a UK or particularly an English perspective lead us to the conclusion that they are utterly unachievable. Firstly, they have a complete comprehensive education system. There is no independent sector. The Finnish education system has a compulsory year, uh, nine-year curriculum and importantly, in relation to the, or certainly in comparison to the UK policy, the right to choose your child's school has had no bearing whatsoever on parents continuing to send their children to the local school. Finnish schools are particularly successful for a variety of reasons. There is no tracking or streaming in Finnish schools. Anathema to most English teachers, certainly in secondary schools and increasingly in primary schools. The schools are construed as caring communities. They are remarkably well-funded. They all provide free school lunches. And in terms of PISA, Finnish schools achieved the lowest between-school variation of all OECD countries, that is, Finnish schools are remarkably similar. There is an integrated special educational needs provision. There's no singing or dancing need to get, a, to get a, an IEP. Once a teacher identifies a problem, it is actioned. And children are supported in class. And typically what happens is that the focus is on mother tongue and, and arith mathematics in the early years... And this has led, because it's an included practice, to the removal of any stigma of special needs and the sense of inclusion. Finally, teaching is a popular but incredibly competitive profession. Only so something of the order of 12% of all applicants for teacher education get places. It's a master's entry profession. So the Finns have identified a whole series of characteristics which you might describe are unique to them that they believe explain why they are doing well on PISA. What I think is missing from all these analyses, and these analyses, by the way, are all have all been conducted by the Finns themselves, what is missing from this analysis is any sense or any uh, evaluation of classroom practice. A didactical or pedagogical analysis is typically missing, both from the Finns' own research and externally. So what else do we know? At what cost has Finnish PISA success been? Well, Andreas Schleicher referred to TIMS, and I'm a mathematics educator, and for me, TIMS, the mathematics component of TIMS, is incredibly important. How did the Finns do on the two TIMS they undertook? Well, they did TIMS in 1999. They achieved a score of 520, which placed them as an average European system. However, from my perspective as a mathematician, the most worrying aspect of that is that average score of 520 was a consequence of very poor algebra, very poor geometry, but high scores on number and number-related themes. 
In other words, you could argue the mathematics necessary for further study of the subject has been severely compromised. They did TIMS again in 2011. Any change? No. If anything, their performance has deteriorated on average. Same sorts of problems, poor algebra, poor geometry, compensated by sophisticated or relatively sophisticated number-related skills. So in terms of PISA, the Finns are not doing particularly well, and that's been recognised by academic mathematicians who, in a survey of 2,400 engineering undergraduates, found that they could not subtract one fraction from another and divide the answer by an integer. These are basic skills which undergraduate engineers could not perform in what the OECD presents as the world's most successful nation. Now let's take this a step further. Now let's do a, a, a slightly deeper cultural analysis of the Finnish situation. Okay, yeah, okay. The fin there is a, sm a small 6% Swedish-speaking minority. This, this Swedish-speaking Swedish minority, against a variety of measures, is an economic elite group. In every system I know, the economic elite outperforms the economic poor. There we have PISA 2009 mathematics comparing the Finnish-speaking Finns with the Swedish-speaking Finns and the Swedish-speaking Swedes. And the Swedish-speaking Finns perform significantly more poorly than the Finnish-speaking Finns. So I don't know what's going on in Finland. There's some strange juxtaposition of what it is to be a Finn against some sort of notion of curriculum. So, alternative... Have I got time for... Yeah. Alternative explanations... The Finns have a strong, fiercely sort of developed local identity. They see themselves much more like the Japanese or the Koreans like, uh, than other Europeans as a consequence of their imperialist past. For, four, for more than 400 years, to take part in Finnish culture, you had, to be, you had to be able to read because you could not take Christian sacraments. And if you could not take Christian sacraments, you could not marry. The consequence of this, fundamentally, is there is a strong... Um, reverence for learning and particularly reading in Finnish culture and there is no illiterate underclass. Finnish performance on PISA, is my, my conjecture, is nothing to do with what goes on in schools. It's entirely to do with what it is to be a Finn. And if we persist in looking at Finland for answers to educational problems, then I suspect we are on a forlorn journey. So, summarising all the above, what does PISA tell us that is useful? Thank you. Um, right, Professor Richard Kimball founded the Technology Education Research Unit at Goldsmiths University of London in 1990, um, has done an enormous amount of work for research councils, industry like Lego, government departments, as well as Engineering Council, Royal Society of Arts, and so on and so forth. He's widely published in the field, um, uh, both single-authored books, editing, as well as reports commissioned by the UK Government Department, Congress in the United States, UNESCO and NATO. He's written and presented television programmes and regular lectures internationally. He's consultant to the National Academy of Engineering and the National Science Foundation in the USA and is a visiting professor at the University of Stockholm. His latest book, Researcher, Researching Design Learning, with Professor Kay Stables, been published by Kluwer and Springer in 2007. So, Richard... Thank you. Good morning. I come from the design department at Goldsmiths. Uh, Goldsmiths University of London is the kind of um, creative lunatic fringe of London University, uh, the home of Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin and the like. Uh, so I'm interested in creative performance. Um, but I'm also interested in 21st century skills, and I was interested in them about 25 years ago. Uh, the first time I came across them um, was in 91 when uh, I read... It's not that I can't spell labour, it's that it's American spelling of the US Department of Labour, produced a report called uh, What Work Requires of Schools. And they listed there all those kinds of qualities that are very parallel to the list that we would see represented in 21st century skills. Not long after that, uh, um, prestigious organisation, the Sheffield Employment Department, uh, produced a list 
of things, uh, qualities for improving the personal skills of graduates and produced a very similar kind of list. Why are all these lists so similar? Because we have a subject-based system of education and these are the things that slip through the gaps in the subjects. If we, sp if we spend all our time teaching subjects, all the things that really matter, all the qualities that we want our uh, children and our undergraduates and our graduates to develop slip through the cracks between English and maths and science and history and geography. These are the qualities that employers are increasingly tell us we need. And, of course, the recent one is actually called 21st Century Skills and listed so on. Now, I'm going to tell you in my five minutes, I'm going to tell you two stories. Um, and they are stories about uh, designing I did a project for the Design Council um, when they were very concerned about the number of designers that we were training. We were training far more designers than there were jobs for. Is this a problem? Well, they said to me, what kind of things can designers do other than be designers? Um, so I said, okay, we'll have a look at that. So I got hold of some primary school teachers, head teachers, head teachers, and about ten of them, and I said, you can only do this project with me if you give me five whole days of your time coming into Goldsmiths. So they said, fine. So one day, I got them to compose uh, a, a description of a decision that they'd made in their school. It might be a decision about the lunch queue, or a decision about security of the children, or a decision about curriculum articulate how this decision got made. Um, and they did that, and they produced these case studies, detailed descriptions of how a decision got made. I then said, okay, now for the next three days, I want you to sit beside groups of design students doing a project. And I want you to observe how they do their decision-making. And on the final day that we had available, we sat around and we analysed what the differences were between those design decision-making processes and their former decision-making processes. And they produced a list. They said design, designers typically work on wicked tasks. They're not just one problem. There's there all kinds of facets to them, many of which are conflicting. They think not as themselves. They have to think in the shoes of another person. They're not designing for themselves. They're designing for somebody else. So they have to think through the eyes of somebody else. Um, there's a few here that excite me particularly. That one I like. Modelling futures. They don't just come up with a solution. They actually build the solution and try it out and make it work. See what happens. And they deal with uncertainty. I'm not, the, so that's my first story. The second story is I want to show you how this worked with a group of students. Um, we had a group of students who were commissioned by Bloomberg to, to look at the foyer. They have a dreadful foyer. It's enormous and very dull. And they wanted a Christmas decoration, a Christmas celebration in their foyer because they wanted to give away Christmas presents to all their employees. And the Christmas presents were white. They were either white gloves a white scarf or a white hat. So they were used to putting up a Christmas tree with Christmas presents. So our students were given the task of, as it were, bidding. We have a, quite a lot of students, and they went, worked in groups of four, and they put together proposals to say, do it this way, do it this way. And the group that won this pitch to Bloomberg ended up making these um, decorative Christmas trees. Now, they are made from acrylic, which has an interesting quality that the light travels through it and emerges on the edges. Uh, and they knew this quality existed, but they said they've got to maximise the amount of edges, uh, which they did with this, these great sheets of acrylic, which they laser cut to take the form of the tree. But they, needed, they decided they needed more light. These students were working with no previous experience of engineering using light. So they were experimenting, and they were working in this area of uncertainty, beyond what they knew, into this new world. And they constructed these 
beautiful, beautiful objects that Bloomberg thought were spectacular and all engineering with light and demonstrating those kinds of qualities. My point is this. I only have one point that about this whole presentation. If you think you're going to develop, or if you think you have already developed, a multiple choice test for 21st century skills, forget it. You are living in cloud cuckoo land. These kinds of skills, these kinds of qualities only emerge when students are deeply engaged in a rich, contextualised, personalised activity. It is not a multiple-choice test. It is not something for a rainy Wednesday afternoon, for Tim's or whoever, Pisa. In order to assess 21st century skills, you have to assess performance. You have to engage the students in those 21st century skills, allow them to demonstrate them, and then track what they do. I'm not going to show you how we've done that, but we have created a system for doing this in, uh, in our research unit where we monitor and build real-time portfolios of students on these kinds of performance. But 21st century skills means performance, <coughs> performance assessment. That's my message. Thank you very much. That's a very, very challenging. Um, and now Neil McLean. After 15 years in teaching, LEA advisory work and consultancy work for a number of curriculum and assessment projects, Neil joined the School Curriculum and Assessment Authority where he developed the original IT national curriculum and he continued to be responsible for that at the QCA. He then joined Bechter in 1998 where he led on its curriculum, LEA support and inclusion work. He established its Evidence and Practice Directorate as a focus for educational research on ICT and good practice. Um, as its Executive Director for Children, he led the development of the self-review framework for ICT and the ICT mark. Recently, Neil worked on the, in the private sector as Director of Business Development for Digital Products at TSL, TSL Education, which, as we all know, is home of the TES. He's now leading the Future Lab Research Centre at NFER, which is committed to developing creative and innovative approaches to education to inspire, challenge and engage young people and equip them with the essential skills and attitudes for life, learning and work in the 21st century. He's a member of UKCCIS, a trustee of the eLearning Foundation and Futureversity and a fellow of the RSA. So he's going to, I think, address the more technological aspects of this. Well, it's maybe entirely not. Up to maybe, not. Maybe, anyway. maybe not. Maybe not. You know, you write these biographies, you never imagine what it's going to sound like when it's read <laughs> out, do you? The next one is going to be completely different. And the other thing about going last is you're kind of left with a doily as I've been cutting things out, as people have already said a lot of the things I was going to say. Um, some of them I will repeat, and I'll try and do some of it in, in um, five minutes. There's something about the time, how long have we been talking about these things? There was a nice story I picked up from Mike Tomlinson um, recently when he said when industry was consulted on the Butler 44 Education Reform Act um, and, and was asked what it wanted of the new tripartite system, it, the response from industry was literacy, literacy numeracy and obedience the three essential outputs of that system. At the same time, leaders were being developed on the playing fields of Eton. So the extent to which all these skills have actually been part of the educational debate, up until quite recently, yes, it's been around for a long time, but it's been seen as a minority sport. You know? Yes, there are eminent Greek for not philosophers talking about it, but they weren't seeing it as things for the general citizenship. You know? The huge thing that changed, largely because of economic factors... As, as has been argued already, is the sense that these things are important to more and more people. Now, we're not going to be a little bit careful about that argument because um, it's worthwhile checking out if it is actually borne out by the facts. Um, one of the things that seems to be happening in the economy in this country at the moment, one of the explanations for how, at a time of recession, less money, unemployment hasn't dropped. In fact, unemployment has, uh, has dropped, or we're actually recruiting more people, is contrary to the expectation... We are actually recruiting people into lower-skilled jobs than we did. 
Yeah? So we've got to be a little, I mean, that may or may not be the right direction to go, but we have to be a little bit careful about this automatic assumption that the direction of travel is towards a high-skill co- economy or whatever. You might want to think about that as part of all of this. But this stuff is on the agenda. I mean, for, for me, the most stark um, realisation, people mentioned other places it was mentioned. Um, Harold Wilson mentioned some of this stuff in the White Heat of Technology uh, speech. I think it occurs in Callahan's uh, Ruskin speech. It occurs actually in various speeches made by education ministers at the time. of. I think um, Lord Young wasn't an education minister, but the time of TVI, for those who remember that, CPP. These things have been around for a while. And the, the kind of starkest sense of the what I'll call the democratisation of those skills, is in the recent advertisements for the British Army, where you see an um, ex-checkout operative saying, the uh, main skill I've developed is leadership. The the, the ability to stand back, think, and work out what needs to be done, and to say, let's go ahead and do it. So I I guess the underlying trend is one about democratisation, the sense that more people need these skills. But I'll come back to whether we know what they are in a minute. Um, You stick 21st century skills in a search engine, you get 6 million results. You know, that gives a sense of how uh, lives... I mean, I started collecting some of the lists that are around and I'm not going to stop because you've already done it and you've analysed them, so I'll stop doing that. But, But I think what's also interesting to look at is the vision statements and assumptions that prefix those skills the claims that are made around these being essential, these will be what differentiates both a nation and the individuals within that nation from being successful or not successful. Um, But let's stand back and think a little bit about some of this stuff. Um, So there are lists, and we've seen some of the lists. What do the lists share? Um, There's actually a remarkable degree of consensus along along the lists, and we've already heard some of that from Irenka. Um, The other thing the lists share and I'll come back to that, is a high degree of abstraction. Um, and I'd urge caution about that, because there's a great thing that was said about, um, when, I think it was when Kenneth Baker was the Minister for Information Technology back in the 1980s. They said it was an ideal area of work because no one knew what it was, but everybody agreed it was a good thing. Um, so there's a little bit of exploring what sits behind some of the language of all this, some of, the, some of these lists, and this high degree of abstraction. There are differences as well in approach, and again, Arenka gave her own taxonomy of those. I'm going to just break it down into two crass distinctions. One is between those, like the playing fields of Eton, who believe in the tacit development of those skills, um, following on from the language of Pollyani and people like that, um, came up with the idea of tacit knowledge and it is a very, very small c conservative notion. It is the idea that these skills are developed tacitly in the relationship between an expert practitioner of those skills and the learner. Typically characterised as a master apprenticeship model and if you want a really good example, watch The Karate Kid. It's not a great film, but it encapsulates that, that the boy... I'm going to, this is going to worry me because I'm going to sort of expecting you've seen it. The boy is asked to clean a fence and paint a fence, and through doing that is actually developing something else, both tenacity and the ability to respond in a particular sort of way. It's tacit. It's not explicit. It's not stated. It's developed tacitly. And there are, of course, people who argue that that is the problem with these skills. They can only be developed tacitly. So the idea of developing an assessment regime around them is nonsensical, some people would argue. I'm not saying they're right, I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying that is an important point of view that needs to be thought about. Um, At the other side, there are people who say these things can be developed explicitly, we can recognise them when we can see them, that person who talked about leadership knew what he was talking about, as did the British Army when they explicitly set out to develop those skills in him as a young person coming into the army. Yeah? What I think is completely um, has been left to one side increasingly is this idea you can do a GCSE in it. You know, the idea that you can abstract it, define it to the point that you can separate out and do GCSE leadership or whatever kind of thing. That it exists separate from a context or separate from an underlying um, set of knowledge and understandings and, concep- and conceptions that sit behind it. Um, which brings me on to the second thing from the degree of abstraction and generalizability around these skills to assumptions about the degree to which they are transferable. And again, 
I'd urge a certain amount of thought about th all this. I like Richard's notion about it being developed in, um, and, and executed through performance in practice. But it is not obvious to me that a city trader with highly refined decision-making skills within the context of making decisions about what to buy or what not to buy applies those decision-making skills eight hours later in a nightclub. It's absolutely not obvious that they are the same thing to me. There's something about knowledge, there's something about the context, there's something about performance in that context that differentiates um, between them. Uh, so there's a degree of contingency. Um, I mentioned knowledge and I won't come back to but I'll give you a concrete example of what can go wrong. It is the very last one. Uh, uh, what can go wrong when you build an assessment system on an abstraction of the thing and you codify that abstraction within your system? That was not quite in English, so I'll go extremely concrete on it. The driving test. Within driving, there's a notion of a transferable skill around the ability to manoeuvre the car. And it applies to a whole range of things. Parallel parking, reversing into a parking space, pulling up next to a petrol pump, you know, finding, negotiating way through a multi-storey car park. In practice, we assess that through three particular iconic <coughs> manifestations of that skill. You're asked to do an emergency stop, reverse round a corner and do a three-point turn. So what do driving instructors teach? They teach the emergency stop, they teach reversing round a corner, and they teach... Yeah, you get the kind of thing. And then you wear a green L on the back while you learn to do all the other sorts of things. Yeah? When I was taught to drive, I was taught in the car to put a particular part mark on the bonnet lined up with a curb so I could reverse round. I passed my driving test. Last question from me, should I have passed it? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. Uh, uh, now, I'm going to actually start by destroying the timetable because uh, we've, we've, we've overrun. Uh, one of the 21st century skills is keeping to time. We haven't done it. Um, so I'm going to extend this, this, this bit by another sort of five or six minutes because I think they, yeah, there's, there was a lot in there, um, uh, particularly around whether one could um, uh, assess these skills in any meaningful sense at all. So uh, I'm going to throw it over, open to the audience. Does, who would like to start off? make any points. Um, Andreas, quite a lot of the gentlemen here uh, were saying that, sort of implying that international tests couldn't really test for this sort of stuff anyway. Um, would you like to sort of come back on that? Or would you well, agree I think with the, the question to what extent uh, culture sort of imposes a barrier to comparisons is a real one, but I also think that we often underestimate, overestimate the impact of culture, you know. Uh, if culture would be sort of making comparisons impossible, we wouldn't see the kind of changes that we have seen, you know. If you look at China, for example, and the dramatic improvement in learning outcomes that we have witnessed in China, um, they didn't change the culture, you know. They didn't fire the teachers. They actually changed the things they taught and how they taught it. So I do believe, actually, you know, Culture is probably a big issue that uh, explains performance differences. You could make the same story about Finland. You know, 30 years ago, Finland was an average performer by any data that we have. Today, uh, there is some variation in the extent to which Finland excels on different types of, types of assessment, which in my view actually tells you a very rich and important story. You want to have different angles through which you can look at an, a system and then compare and contrast those kinds of angles, but the fact that systems like the Finnish or the Chinese have actually been seeing dramatic improvements, Poland would be another example in Europe, you know, the fact that those systems actually have seen very significant changes in their results is evidence, you know, that in, even if there are di cultural differences, that there's a lot that we can do to actually improve educational outcomes. Right. Thank you. Any of you gentlemen want to come back on that? Uh, anybody in the audience? Yes, sir. Uh, can we have a... There we are. Thank you. Um, my name... Yeah? My name is Julian Stanley from the University of Warwick. Um, just a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is about the point which has already been made about uh, looking at knowledge and skills in terms of subjects as opposed to looking at knowledge and skills 
not from the point of view of subjects. And, and, and obviously, you know, the 21st skills agenda is associated with trying to think outside of subjects, and it's associated with the challenge to subjects. Um, and that's quite a battle, because thinking about things, you know, there are big communities who are committed to subjects. There's lots of people whose jobs are tied up in subjects. So, you know, there's, there's an area of resistance there, and there's an issue about to what extent that's a battle to the death and to what extent there's room for sort of reconciliations and so on, how that, how that battle should be fought out. And I think there's also, a, there is a kind of national cultural kind of issue on that because a lot of subjects are nationally specific. I mean, history, literature, geography. I mean, these are all associated with kind of national uh, understandings and national, uh, and a lot of 21st century skills is trying to think beyond those national pools. And so, you know, that, that's another issue on, on that one. And then, and then the, the, other, the other issue, I suppose, is about who is it to de- define educational goals and curriculum? Because there seems to be another distinctive feature about 21st century skills. This is a claim from people outside of education, namely politicians and business people and, and, and so on, that they should have a say in that. Uh, whereas traditionally, of course, subjects are, are defined, the content of subjects is defined by the insiders, by the subject specialists. So, you know, there's another issue about who, who, who should have say so here. Yes, I, that, I think that's, that's very, very useful. Um, would you like to come around and then right at the very back, that lady... Oh, sorry, I've got glasses on. I, would, yes. I wouldn't like the message to have come from my presentation that I don't think these skills are accessible, because they are. What I'm saying is they have to be assessed within the context of performance. Now, that does put a slightly different spin on the nature of subjects. So, for example, my research unit was developed with OCR, um, uh, a GCSE qualification in innovation. <coughs> so yes. yes, it's in the context. It's in the context of design, um, but it's really, really, the focus is on the skill of innovation. Um, so yes, they're. I think they are accessible, but only through authentic performance. That's my point. Ah, right. Okay. Yes. Hello, um, I'm Angela Hall from the Nuffield Foundation. Um, I'm not entirely convinced by this argument that um, the skills have to be assessed within performance because I think you still have to abstract and define those skills in order to identify them within the context of performance. So um, I don't think it's necessarily helping the situation to to try and look at them within performance. I'm just wondering whether the panel think that assessment should be moving more towards students' uh, testing of students' metacognition of, of their own skills in a range of contexts, so the affordances of, of those skills in a range of contexts and, and how they could be applied in new situations rather than trying to directly assess them. Well, um, yes, I'm going to start here, but uh, Andreas, I think that's something you picked up quite early on, so I'm going to finish, finish with you on that one as well. Yes. Um, in terms of the metacognitive skills, it's interesting that if you look at the Singapore mathematics curriculum, uh, and it's typically presented as a, as a pentagon comprising five elements, one of those elements is children's metacognitive awareness of their mathematical problem solving. That's the ambition. We saw the Swiss roll curriculum earlier. That's the ambition. What evidence we have concerning Singapore teaching, the teaching we see in Singapore classrooms gets nowhere near those ambitions. So we may have the goal of encouraging a a child's metacognition, but to achieve that ambition requires a wholesale reappraisal of teacher education and what it is to be a teacher in our classrooms. Because where they have attempted to do it, they have spectacularly failed. Just, I mean, it's it's interesting stuff, this. So so Paul's response was metacognition, and then you said of there. You didn't leave metacognition as a free-floating idea. You connected it with with something. The the thing that you're talking about is something, whether there's a a generalizable set of metacognition skills, where you don't say of there. And that's the bit that I think is extremely Challenging. I take the point because I always used to argue with teachers of Latin if they claimed it was about developing a capacity for logical thinking. Why do they sit a Latin exam, not a logic exam at the end of it? 
kind of thing. Um, I, 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 I see it as an aspiration, but I think we're a distance out from that level of understanding of the things. And personally, I feel far more comfortable with the way Paul formulated it, or where Richard formulates it. Yes, he's talking about innovation, but to be honest, it is within a specific context. And whether that is the, exactly the same sort of thing as, as we mean about when someone's being innovative in a different context, being a poet or whatever kind of thing, I'm not absolutely sure. I think there's more work to be done. And I do think there's a risk of overclaiming. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to touch on the issue of start with metacognition, actually. In the context of PISA, we attribute a lot of importance to metacognitive skills, but also within sort of subject meta context. It's very, very hard, actually, to define metacognition in, in general abstract terms. So once you look at this, you know, once you think sort of do our students able to use mathematics as a language to understand structure, model, predict the world, you can actually look at metacognition. If you remove it from the subject, it's going to be very, very hard to assess. Why do we attribute so much importance to this? Because it's actually shown to be highly predictive for future student success. One of the most interesting things that we have done in PISA is actually trace students in a number of countries from the year 2000 when we tested them and uh, following them up, for example, in the, in the case of Canada, we have a sample of 30,000 kids that actually we know what the kind of predictive power of different types of items has been on their sort of transition to higher education or to the labor market. And we do find that actually those kinds of tasks kept in sort of the tackle higher order thinking skills and metacognitive skills are actually quite important on that. Just sort of on this issue, I, I very much agree also that performance-related tasks are very, a very, very important part of the mix of assessments. Are they the only way to assess 21st century skills? I really do have doubts on it because actually, once again, our assessments show that you can predict a fair degree of students' success now and later in life with sort of quite traditional forms of tasks. I think what we, we don't need to sort of just have one way of assessing things. What we need is a good mix of different, different instruments and integrate different perspectives. But I, I don't discount even multiple choice items. You know, even in PISA, we do look, we do use a share of multiple choice tasks, which actually are quite good in assessing certain types of skills that are very, very important for people's later success. So, I would caution against sort of a very one-sided view, only one thing works in the 21st century. I think what we need is a good mix of assessment tasks and approaches, and then to, to triangulate between those different perspectives. Thank you very much. Uh, this argument will, of course, be carried on quite dramatically in the next session, but I shall now uh, um, uh, break for coffee. Uh, can I ask all of the speakers that we currently, uh, for this afternoon, to remain behind so they can be mic'd up? Um, and uh, we have uh, 15 minutes for coffee. Uh, please be back here in uh, at 25 past. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.